Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulitaler. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce you to Deep Cayley. Deep is a former fashion editor at Vogue India back in London and fashion director at Tatler. In her time as an editor and a stylist, she worked with some big names, styling the likes of Anna Taylor-Joy, Priyanka Chopra-Jonas, Hailey Bieber, and many more. Now, prior to this, she also held roles at the Uber Cool, Dazed and Confused, under Nicola Formichetti, and was managing director for Kim Jones, nowadays deep as a consultant, She leans on her expertise to support brands with image creation, global visual language, and supports as well direction for magazine launches. But today, Deep is also the artistic director for the arts organization Without Shape, Without Form. From a Sikh background herself, Deep has headed this organization since its very beginnings. Led only by volunteers, this super interesting hybrid project offers a link between art, spirituality, and the hot topic that is mental health via the Sikh teachings. Now, the exhibition also offers context and history for the teachings, but importantly, it reaches out to explore the workings of the mind and does so transcending cultural, racial, and social barriers. So, in our conversation, we go straight into the deep end and I'm so sorry for the pun but it is so true as soon as I hit the recording button we got into a really meaningful conversation so much so that I couldn't even start by welcoming her on the podcast and we had to do a short follow-up interview because I couldn't cram all of my questions in the 90 minutes that we'd set aside so in this episode you're going to hear about Deep's personal journey because we go way beyond talking about her career starting from childhood we discuss loss how she approached very young the big questions in life how deep found her way to art school before discovering a path in fashion then styling and how at age 27 she reconnected with her spiritual path so we talk about creativity spirituality Simran, the unique practice that is at the core of the Sikh teachings and of course is an integral part of what is presented at Without Shape, Without Form. And of course we talk about what's next for this unique interactive exhibition as it's currently touring the UK and hopefully will tour internationally very soon. I am so proud and happy to be bringing you this interview and I hope you'll enjoy as much as I did. Happy listening. I've stopped thinking about stuff like this now, like whether I like my voice or what, whether I like what I look like, because mm. there's so much now with the project as it grows. And this is, like I said, it's just the start of it. Yeah, It's just one of those things that you're just going to have to get used to. I don't have the headspace to think about what does my voice sound like or what do I mm. look like? And, oh, I don't like the way I look. I just like, you know what? It's all fine. That's interesting you should say that because I wanted to tell you, it's going to sound so naff, but I can't remember how many years ago I met you, but you made a big impression on me. Really? I know. I remember since the first day, there was something about the look of you and your name. And I just thought, God, this woman is so appealing. (laughs) 
That's interesting. I know there was something, and I remember it from years ago. I, you were, I don't remember when you started working with Louboutin, but it was a while back. Anyway, I was reflecting on that last night. And it's interesting that you say that because over the weekend and yesterday, I was in two conversations about people with me working in fashion, the sort of the spirituality side of things and how in a stereotypical way, it actually contradicts the industry that I've worked in. And they just asked me, how did you navigate it? And I said, it was hard work. Like everything that you do is a practice. It's a daily practice. Your evolution is a daily practice. And I said, I think what I realized after a while that I could only be myself and be true to the things that I really believe in. Mm. And for that reason, I started realizing that maybe that's what was making me stand out as well. It wasn't just necessarily my appearance or my work, the physical side of me, but maybe it was the time that you encountered me. Mm. I said something and I also can't take credit for the things that I said because all I'm doing is being a conduit of Mm. other knowledge that exists. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, I was just like, oh, okay, maybe that's it. And it's so funny that you just said that because I'm like, okay. So it was (laughs) like, I wasn't trying to do it, but it was definitely having an effect. Absolutely. And I wondered whether I was going to tell you because it's a bit of a strange thing to say to someone because it's, I don't, yeah, it's not something that I've encountered with a lot of people in my life. I also realized that when I used to go for breakfast, so there were so many breakfasts mm. involved, naturally I would start talking about the things that we're going to be talking about today. It would just come naturally. Like I, mm. I wouldn't even try. It wasn't an agenda to be like, okay. So my one rule when I first started at Tatler like which is bringing this element of Mm. the practice in was one thing is doing the practice itself in the mornings, Mm -hmm. getting your hours in and what have you. But then something called Jeevan Jach is the idea that you have to then live by what you've just done. So an equivalent of that would be, imagine you just did a two hour amazing session with your trainer. You did weights, you did cardio, you did all of that stuff, two hours of it. You then did some stretching. You had this amazing two hour session you're feeling great, you have your shower and everything, and then you come out. And then what you do is you go straight to McDonald's, KFC, you name it, whatever. It doesn't matter. It can be whatever. I'm not putting down brands here, but just as mm-hmm. if you have junk food. Yeah. Everything that you did for those two hours, like completely and utterly mm. brought to zero. And it's the same with the internal world. So I've just in this two hour amazing session, managed to calm the mind down, get it ready for the day, get it in control. And Mm. then the next thing I do, as soon as I step out, is that I start talking badly about people. I start gossiping. Mm. I allow my mind to go to negativity, go to anger, go to jealousy, all of these things. So that's what you you have to keep an eye on it. You have to watch it. You have to see it coming and be prepared for it. And that's not physical preparedness. That's the mental preparedness. Mm. So the thing in the fashion industry would be the notion, the stereotype that we all love to gossip. Like we all love to make up story and the he said, she said of stuff. Mm. So my thing, as soon as I started, was like one rule. There's no gossiping in mm. this room. I can't say that for the whole magazine. I can't say, but in this room. Sure. And also I was in the privileged position. I was the director. So I was the one hierarchically, I say in inverted commas, mm-hmm. the highest position in that room. So I could say mm. that. If I was an assistant, maybe mm. I wouldn't have been able to say that. But um, 
it really worked. So the relationship that I had with somebody who's about to say something to me, and at that time, my assistant, for example, would love coming to me and going, Deep, I've got something to tell you. And I'd always say, one second, two questions. One, is it true? And then she'd have to reflect on it and be like, yes, it's true. Okay, then (laughs) second, do I need to know? Like, even if it is true and it is information about other people, like what impact is that going to have on my life? Mm. And then what that does is it helped me and it helps her like to stop, slow down, self-reflect and what have you. So, yeah, so those kind of things kick in. And then that's what I'm saying. So by and large, by the time you've met somebody and you're conscious that if I'm about to have a breakfast with someone and they all they want to do is get the juicy goss, I'm like, that's not what I'm about. <laughs> so I kind of learned and knew how to navigate out of those conversations. If I knew someone's about to start talking about someone, how quickly to change the subject. Mm. And that was, I've got to be honest with you, it was selfish because I was like, hey, one second, I've just done this practice in the morning. I want to make sure that mm. my my hard work doesn't go kaput just because you want to tell me something about somebody else that I don't really need to know about. Thank you so much. That really resonates very profoundly with me. And on a completely different level, I've been faced with, with a very gossipy community here in Geneva because I have a puppy and there's a dog park underneath my window pretty much Mm. and so I'm in the dog park every day and some people in there just love to gossip and criticize and it's while like you I have found my own way to to disengage with this kind of behavior and people who don't realize the power of their words and how it does impact the people that they talk about even if they are far removed from them it is a complicated thing to navigate and to find that one of the hardest things that I have to do is also not judge the person gossiping Right. Because at early points in my life, I did partake as well. It's a, it's an interesting and difficult conundrum. We all do, right? Because like we're, we're brought up in this world where it's get together. So what's the latest? What's going on? And mm. slowly you find out that the more you disengage from it, the more enriching the conversations are. And yeah. or more silence there is. There's, if I take that chunk of behavior out than what's left, then there's only a couple of things. You can only speak about the truth, things that are true, either physically true around you, or you're problem solving something, a situation, or you're talking about big ideas, big, con- big concepts, or you're talking about this. Mm. And when you've got that, those guidelines set up in your head, it's just amazing how much you're saved from spiritually Mm. as well like it's the biggest poison gossiping is called in that it's the biggest poison you could ever do is speak Mm. make up stories about people or speak badly about people and and then the opposite of that is also quite profound which is if you genuinely have a problem it doesn't mean that I literally that person did do something to me and I do have a problem with them and or so that's the situation and instead of me going to tell a third person that third person should be wise enough to say okay so you've got a situation why don't you do this Mm. Bring that person, you come along, talk to each other about it, figure Mm. it out and move on with your lives. And moving on with your lives could be one of two things. One, you might be surprised on the things that you didn't hear and that situation could be fixed. Or the other one is cut your losses here and just let it go, walk away. Just don't Mm. be in each other's paths and stuff. Mm. And both serves each other instead of this kind of fueling this fire. And by the way, that's not just true of he said, she said in the small, like, I had an encounter with and somebody did something with. This is on big scale as well. Like we're talking about society. Mm. We're talking about, dare I say, politics as well. Like that kind of like cat and mouseness of it all. What does the mm. world look like when we stop 
thinking that we are the center of everything and that everything that's happening is happening to us. And when we stop making up stories in our head and that one thing that happened, more than likely, it's never as big as we've made it up in our head. Mm. And therefore, by bringing a third person into it to add fuel to that story and that person's, oh, she didn't. Did she really say that to you? Oh, and then you're like, then your story in your head becomes bigger. And yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, I didn't think of that, that she could have meant that. All of this stuff, it just cuts it out. Like, Come on, guys, life's too short. Let's <laughs> talk about the big I stuff. Agree. <laughs> I completely agree. And I like how we just went straight into the, the deep end. I'm going to bring this to a close before starting from scratch again by saying I grew up in a little village in at the back of Geneva County at the border with France. And my mother did not feel like she fitted in and she was depressive and suffered quite a lot of mental health difficulties. And the gossip in the village was always something that felt deeply difficult for her to accept. She always felt very ostracized by that. And I'm sure she didn't help herself. But the more you feel like people have added this layer of story on top of who you are, the more it can make someone in in a difficult situation suffer even more. So this resonates with me Mm. on a very different level because I've seen the the weight that it can, what am I trying to say? The weight that it can be on someone else's shoulder who already doesn't need to carry anymore. But hey, Deep, welcome to Out the Clouds. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you today. And that, by the way, what just happened there is exactly what ends up happening. I know, and that's what I do as well. (laughs) You go straight into it. (laughs) Totally, and that's why I always try to press the record button very quickly, just to make sure that I don't miss any of the good stuff. I'd like to first introduce you to our listeners by asking you to start with telling us your story. Essentially, what I like about starting wherever you want, it could be from childhood even, it's just for us to talk about who we are and what made us into who we are today, right? Before we talk about what we do. That's all right. Will you tell us your story? <laughs> then I have to think how far back do I go? I think what then for me, the pivotal moment has to be at the age of 10 when my mother passes away and having this profound realization on reflection now, not necessarily at that time, but definitely now, realizing that one thing I always knew was that death was the biggest truth. It's something that I'm not fearful of. It's something that I've always known to be the biggest fact. And I've always wondered as a child, why we're so scared of something that's so utterly true. But unfortunately, I was around people that might not have had the same sort of thinking, and this is again reflection, I did not know this at that time, why people were holding on to so much. My mother also died very slowly and very painfully. So it wasn't all of a sudden it happened. There are moments in that time that she was really ill when, you know, you feel guilty that you're actually praying that like this person now does die because this doesn't seem to be so fair that they're having to go through so much pain, considering they were such a pivotal part of the family, such amazing thinking. And all of that goes back to Sikki as well. So starting my story from there seems like the most important thing because in what my mother had done in those 10 years that I did get to spend time with her was instill this deep-rooted understanding, practical understanding of um, Sikki. And she had done that through discipline, repetition and practice. 
And I would say, I would love to have this conversation with her now, but I would say I'm in the privileged position to have found what she was looking for and she hadn't found it. So therefore, that practice of Sikhi, she was doing it very much in a ritualistic, repetitive, if I keep Mm. doing this, if I keep doing this, then I will get to a point. Unfortunately, I later on in my life at the age of 27, find out that it's not, that's not how it works. So at the age of 10, she, she passes away. My dad is awesome. He's like, very simple, very quiet, very unassuming person that you probably wouldn't even notice if he walked into a room. But in the background, he is incredibly progressive, like quietly. He would never say that. You would never hear though anything that you would think, oh my God, that's such a profound thing to say. He does it quietly in his silence. And the reason why I say that is that I'm the youngest of one of two daughters. And being of a generation... And being of a culture who really celebrates and really, right, really puts men or boys on a pedestal to have a father, a single father now of two daughters at that time was a testament of his his own thinking, really, and how it didn't bother him that he had two daughters and he wouldn't let society, a little bit like what you said about your mother, conversations of others, he wouldn't let those get into his head. And the reason why I say all of that is because One, I was a girl. Two, was that my mother was adamant that I was going to be a doctor. Like most Asian, (laughs) South Asian parents, Uh I was going to be one of the, I forget what they are, they're doctors, lawyers and accountants. These are like Mm -hmm. the three professions that are like the be all and end all. Oh, not engineer? No, engineering didn't come up. I went through a phase (laughs) where I thought I wanted to be an engineer only because I fell in love with Formula One. And I thought, I know, I'm not going to be a driver. Not quite sure why I didn't think that I couldn't be the driver. I know what I'll do. I'll work in the pits. I'll work in, I'll be engineering the cars. That lasted like probably two weeks. But the doctor thing was like from birth. Like it was like Mm -hmm. marriage, kids, doctor, marriage, kid. This was Mm -hmm. the story that was constantly being told. Mm -hmm. So when she passes away and the more that I get into education and the things that I enjoy, my dad's not so strict on that thing. My dad's thing was, I need a degree from you. I don't care what the degree is in. So that was a little bit of a blessing because by the time I'd got to college or actually at school to college, like when it was choice of A-levels, one of my A-levels was fine art, psychology and economics as well, right? Economics, let me figure this out. Maybe I should, mm. a cousin of mine had done a degree in economics and I looked up to my cousins. And yeah, so I tried economics for two weeks and thought this is the most boring thing in the world. So ditched it. (laughs) But it was also the first time that I was doing fine art. And all I knew was that I wanted to be an artist. But at the age of 17, 18, being who I was, born into the family that I was and born into a family of academics and, and also my parents are first, they're the immigrants, they've moved in, into the UK. I don't know what an artist was. I don't know what it meant. I didn't have art around me. I didn't have creativity in that sense around me. So I, just knowing that I wanted to be one wasn't good enough because I didn't know what it actually meant. Sure. So I did, I did my A-level. So I chose to do fine art. Again, I was probably the worst painter because I had <laughs> no idea of composition or anything. And I remember my tutor saying to me, you're terrible. You don't understand composition. And I was like, you're a teacher. Why don't you teach it? And then the second thing was like, and who defines what composition is? Who's Mm. telling you what is and what doesn't go like that? But 
Anyway, and then anyway, I did a foundation degree in art and design. And at that point, you then have to decide what your specialism is going to be. And Mm. I think I went into fashion design because I felt like if I wasn't going to be an artist, in inverted commas, because I didn't know what that meant, because how do you earn money by being an artist? I know I'll go into fashion because it feels like there's a job at the end of that. And I've always enjoyed clothes. So that was that. But within my first year of university, I realized I didn't want to be a designer. Um, I thought that it was really boring, but I had such an amazing experience. I was given the opportunity to do work experience at Days and Confused. As much as I'd been looking and collecting magazines in all this Mm. time, and I absolutely loved them, I didn't really know how they worked. Mm. So that work experience, those two weeks in the Easter holidays, oh, I loved it so much. So they told me, asked me to come back in the summer. So then I did a whole That's awesome. Yeah, 19. And then, so then that summer... I went back and did the summer work experience. And they actually asked me, Kathy Edwards, who's now passed away since then, had mm-hmm. asked me, she said, would you, like, would you want to do this full time, become an assistant full time? And I remember going back to my dad going, oh my God, there's this industry that I absolutely love. And can I do it? Can I be full time? And he just said to me, no, remember, only one thing I asked from you was the degree. And actually being the wise, silent warrior that he is, he was right. He was mm. right. I should have stayed at uni and I'm glad that I did because mm. now I knew I wanted to work in magazines. I knew I was creative. It allowed me two years to make that degree whatever I wanted to. And I had some amazing tutors. So I started working with a friend of mine who's now a photographer in New York. I remember him walking into a classroom and just shouting out to the classroom, does anybody have any clothes? I want to do a photo shoot. And I remember just going, <laughs> me, I don't, but I'll make some. Uh-huh. And that's how it started. I just started doing photo shoots with him. And then We've gone on to do many photo shoots since then as well. And I, I love that. I love the fact that I had this time to explore and sensation at the exhibition at the Royal Academy had just opened as well. And it was the first time I went to an art gallery by myself. And can you imagine my first introduction to art was sensation, like incredible exhibition and London, like a real turning point in art in London as well. So yeah, all of those things happen. And then so by the time I graduated, I already knew Nicola Formichetti. Nicola's assistant at that time was in New York. He wanted some help with a couple of shows he was doing. So I helped him with that. 9-11 happened at that same time oh, yeah. as well. And remember London Fashion Week, New York was just about to finish. And his assistant at that time, she didn't come back from New York for a while. So I remember about three months in going, when's your assistant coming back? When like, he said, oh, no, no, she's not coming. You're my assistant. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks, dude. Thanks for letting me know. And that was it. And that was my introduction into the fashion industry. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Your university sounded pretty great. It sounded like you were given a lot of opportunities to explore. My psychology tutor at A-level, uh-huh. this, you've got some tutors or some teachers in your life. Something they say always stays with you, right? Oh, yeah. She said, and I don't know why I knew, she said, there's someone in this class. She didn't even point me out, but I just knew it was me. But you know what the beautiful thing is? It might not have been me. But the fact that I took it to be me was also bad. That some people that you already know ahead of time, that they're going to be successful. And and mm. I, cause she, I knew she was talking about me because of another conversation that she'd had with me. And it's something an aunt of mine had once also said. This one's mm. good. And I'm like, how do you know that? And then at uni, and the reason why I'm joining these dots is that there was something about my relationship with my tutors that they could trust that I could stretch the syllabus that they were teaching and allow me to do what I wanted to do, but still stay in the parameters of I've still got to finish this degree and mm. this module is this module, but I can adapt it enough. 
They mm. knew that I was creative and maybe, dare I use the word responsible enough to get what needed to be done, but mm. also allow me to be the person that I needed to be or wanted to be. And there was a sheer perseverance in me that was just like, I will do what I want to do, which mm. later on in my life is I learned how to let that go. Ah, interesting. Where do you think that sheer perseverance came from? Oh, now again, with hindsight, it was just like constantly growing up from that point of age of 10, hearing people saying that to my dad, be careful, the fact that she's going to do this like industry or work or degree or whatever it is that nobody understands, Mm. that be careful that she's going to go off the rails, that there's something in my behavior and my outspokenness that my dad needed to be careful of. What they didn't understand, again, this is why I say that he's a quiet character He'd already said to us that, listen, as Asian girls who are extra protected and kept as being extra precious, that I trust you. So I'm going to let you do things that others are controlling their children, whereas I'm going to let you go. But I trust you. I trust that you will be honest with me and tell me first if anything that needs to be told. And also that I, you will tell me what's happening in your lives. Like you don't, there was at that time also, there's this huge culture. It's, there's a whole shift in it. This is where the idea of daytime gigs came. The fact that there's these parents that are not allowing these children to do anything in the evenings. So what the kids are now doing, there's a whole movement that came around that you actually during your college time, you go and do something, go out to gigs and stuff. Sure. But we never had that. I never, ever experienced that. To a certain extent, I also wasn't interested in a lot of the stuff because I didn't need to rebel against anything because mm. my father didn't give us the opportunity. Like He wasn't restricting us in any way. But I was aware enough to hear that society was having these conversations around how my dad was bringing us up. Mm. Um, and it's a close-knit community as well. So there was a slight resentment on my side towards the community as well, which kind of kept me going to be like, wait, I'll prove you wrong. <laughs> you wait. And you know what? And it was also within my family, right? So lots of people are doing business degrees, are doing law degrees, are doing accountancy. And I'm still the only one that's navigating this space by myself, not having any role models, not having anyone to be like, how do I do this? But don't get me wrong, my family was also supportive, but they just didn't know how to support me. So a lot of this stuff, I had to figure it out by myself. But there was that proud moment at a cousin's wedding when I just got my results. And I was the only one in the family that has ever got a first class degree. And, and I thought to myself, I know my uncle, he's really outspoken. And he's just going to make a joke of it. He's just going to be like, yeah, but she's got a first class degree in drawing. That's hardly difficult. But he was the proudest. Like when I told her, we were mm. at a family wedding and he announced it to the whole family. He was like, how proud he was that out of everyone that I was the one that here she is, she's come home with a first class degree. That's Yay. so wonderful. Yeah. How did the rest of your family and your dad feel as you navigated the rest of your fashion career? The close knit ones, they were incredibly supportive, but they were also incredibly grounding as well, because as a tight knit family, they didn't really understand what I did. So in not understanding what I did, they weren't that wowed by certain things. Oh my God, I'm going to go to Milan and do the Dolce & Gabbana show with Nicola. They're like, oh, what does that mean? Yeah, we heard of Dolce & Gabbana, but what does that, oh, I don't know what that actually means. So it's quite humbling that I would come home and be like, okay, yeah, it's actually not that big of a deal. Yeah, you're right. But at the same time, they were really supportive. For my dad, the light that kind of shone in his eye was when I got the job at Vogue because it was something he didn't know who Nicola, he didn't know who Dazed was, he didn't know who Kim Jones was. 
But, but my family always knew to ask the right questions. Oh, how was that photo shoot? Did the models fly in? Where was the photographer from? They knew how oh, to ask the right so questions. that's so sweet. But they didn't necessarily know how it all came together. But yeah, Vogue was the one that they were like, oh my God, she's working at Vogue. <laughs> what year was that? Vogue. Because that must have been around the time I met you, I want to say. It must be around like 2008. Was yeah. it around that time? Probably. Yeah. I had a similar start with you when I remember 9-11. I was in London then. So, so for those listeners who are going to enjoy this conversation greatly, but have no understanding of what it is that you did for <laughs> that side of well your career, done. could you please explain what you did for Nicola, for Kim Jones, and then let's explain what you were doing for Vogue as well, and then Tatla. So when I first started at Dazed, as I started as an intern, then I became Nicola Formichetti's assistant. And Nicola Formichetti is awesome, half Japanese, half Italian, beautiful way of mm. mixing his two worlds together. We had a great time. So Nicola now actually is like the creative director for Lady Gaga. In between his work for Thierry Mugler, does Uniqlo. Nico Panda has his own brands and stuff. Awesome, like super, super creative. Through Nicola, because we used to style his shows, I met Kim Jones. This was Kim had maybe a year or two before I had met Nicola, just graduated from Central St. Martins. Oh. So it was this awesome menswear designer to keep an eye on and like great, loved him from straight away. So when I had started thinking about moving on from assisting, Kim would always ask me, would you mind doing a couple of days work with me? And so that's how I got to know Kim. And before I knew it, then I became like, I ran his company with and for him mm. for about three years, I think it was. And then working with Kim basically meant that now Kim is, as we all know, is the artistic director of menswear at Dior and the artistic director of womenswear at Fendi. I'm so privileged to have actually spent so much time and seen the creativity of both these two geniuses. But then with Kim, what had happened was I was starting to, it was starting to be like I was dealing with, I was dealing with the lawyers and the accountants and the PR company, all of this stuff, which mm. is wonderful. Actually, it helped me when I started consulting. It helped me massively that I understood the business end of running a fashion company. But the creativity side was going. And then at that time, I'd bumped into an ex-assistant of mine and said, oh, by the way, do you know that they're launching Vogue India? And at this point, I'd just started becoming really interested in India. Like India was really opening up. And I was like, okay, maybe this, there was always something missing, by the way. There was something very deep in my heart that was missing. So I thought maybe the thing that's missing is that connection to roots. So how interesting would this be, like India and Vogue together? So she introduced me to the amazing Anna Harvey, mm. who at that time was the editorial director of inter all the international Vogues. I had an interview with her and then I had an interview with the editor and the fashion director of Vogue India. And I have to say, I went into this interview being so like, this job is mine. There is nobody else that they could possibly get. And the reason why I say that is which other... Indian, Asian fashion people. There isn't any, there's only me. So this job's mine. Little did I know that about 20 other people did get interviewed. I'm glad I didn't know that. Anyway, I got that job. So I was the fashion editor of Vogue India from the launch, but I was always based in London, which was beautiful because I didn't want to move to India. So I did that for 
four years, four and a half years. Was that when Bandana was this fashion yeah. director? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Also Bandana, Bandana was a fashion features director. Features, but there you yeah, go, yeah. Fashion, yeah, she's a force to be reckoned with. Loved her, love her, not love. And then after that, in all of this time, by now, all I want to do is I want to become freelance as well. I want to not work full time for anyone. So I left Vogue India on a real high being like, it's time to go. It's time to not be defined by the places that I work in. It's time to figure things out for myself. But then once you're in the Condé Nast family, you get sucked in because then another a wonderful assistant of mine pointed out to me that the fashion director role at Tatler was going. And this is like four mm. months after I've left Vogue India. And this job, by the way, I was not interested in the slightest but a part of me always likes to be challenged. And I like mm. the idea of, listen, I haven't done any interview practice in four years now. And you never know where this editor is going to be next. Let's just use it as an opportunity to practice. and go meet. But the interview went really well. <laughs> we got on really well. And then I got called again. And for the second time, I thought that this was a second interview. And it wasn't like Kate Reardon was offering me the job. And I wasn't prepared for the job to be offered to me that <laughs> In that second meeting, I was a bit like, yeah, great. Okay, leave it with me and I'll think about it. And it took me over three weeks to actually decide whether I was going to take this job. That's fascinating. Or not, yeah. Again, for those listeners who don't know Tatler, would you please give them a little bit of a short explanation as to how different it is from Vogue India? Maybe that will give them context. It is like the most English, British, even though there are other franchises of it now, but it's like the whitest, most English high society magazine mm. ever. And it, yeah, it talks to a very small niche part of UK society. But then you have, it has a huge international following because it's so quintessentially English that people yeah. also use it as a reference to understand how to navigate that world mm. as well. And also uh, editors have done a great job over time. I haven't read it for a long time because I don't live in the UK anymore. But it knows how to take its, itself not too seriously. And that's when it really comes into its own. I think that this, when you read this very posh magazine and it doesn't take itself seriously, you get to laugh with everyone who's working on it. And I found that really one of its great qualities. Which in itself is so English I, as exactly. well. And, but which was Kate Reardon's greatest strength, the editor that I mm. worked under. Yeah, her thing was exactly that. She had this famous quote, oh, my diamond shoes are pinching me. Like this idea <laughs> of knowing that you're in this really incredible privileged position, but then you're still complaining about it. So yeah, That's no, hilarious. it was, yeah. So her thing was everything had to be a little bit kooky and a little bit mad and it couldn't be self-indulgent in that way. That's amazing. So I wonder what was going through your life across the arc of your career, what was happening to you spiritually or personally? So uh, what I mentioned earlier, so mum passes away at 10 and up until the age of 27, I know that there's some deep rooted questions in my heart, which are not getting answered. The main one being, why are we here? That mm. there has to be more to existence and life than just working. I always say that I was in the privileged position. I was in a privileged position to do the job that I love, but I also busted my gut to do it as well. So I do like to check in with myself and not always say, oh my God, I was in a privileged position. But because especially working in London yeah. as an assistant for a magazine that at that time doesn't pay interns, you had to be creative of how you 
were working. And that for me meant that working all day at the magazine and then working up until the middle of the night in, on a second job. That's how we managed to do it. And living off a diet of bagels. I lived in East London next to the 24-hour bagel store. Oh, that was my... Amazing. <laughs> off the plane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how we ate. And that's... But in that struggle, there's also so much amazing stuff that comes out of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I had this kind of very deep-rooted kind of questions like, what are we here? And I explored it with conversations with friends who are from different professions, like whether that's philosophy or science in itself, friends that were Buddhist, anywhere we traveled around the world. It was at the forefront, by the way. It wasn't like I was desperately searching every day to being like, I was trying to find meaning in life and I'm getting more and more successful in my career. I'm earning more. I'm doing all the right things as per what success is supposed to look like. But it's still not answering that big question, but it's got to be, there's got to be more than this. And the second question was like, why are we all so shit to each other? Like, why are people like people so horrible to each other? Mm. So those two questions were better. And then somehow, as it happens at the age of 27, and this was in November. So this was just before I get the Vogue job, because I get the Vogue job in March. And in November of the year before, I happened to go to the Gurdwara. A Gurdwara is a Sikh temple. And I hate using the word temple. So you'll find in this interview, I'll use the correct words opposed to the isms of them. So I went to the Gurdwara and the program that was happening at that time, I knew that something had been happening back home, that there was this like kind of movement of Simran. And I didn't really know what it was. But knowing that I grew up in Sikhi, you'd think that I knew what these terms were. So I went and somebody had been saying, oh, why don't you come this weekend? There's this program. Anyway, I went and All I can tell you was that I had very little idea of what was being said because the language was the same. It's language I've known, but it wasn't being used in the context that I'd known of it before. And certain words that I was just like, I have no idea what those words actually mean. But all I can say to you is I just knew that what was being said was the truth. And I got the answers of why we're here and what this world is actually all about. And Who cares what was being said and how it was being said? The most important thing for me at that day was that it was the truth. And I just knew, I knew it, I knew it for fact that this is true, that I don't need to go into much more debate. I want to understand a bit more. I want to understand the language around this, but I know that this is finally, I found some sort of truth. And then the Simran that was happening was so amazing and I absolutely fell in love with it. And that was it from day one, that was it. So from that day, Every week I was there and I was like, this is Mm. finally I found something. And then from that point to now, when we're talking about like over however many 17, 15 years, my spiritual journey was now starting and I was understanding stuff. But my external world, my work and everything was quite separate. And then now in the past two years, those two worlds have collided beautifully. (laughs) That's so wonderful. So I... I want to ask you this, and it may be complicated, but what did you hear that day that was answering the question, what was the truth you heard? Great question. Now I'd have to go back to it. In essence, what I understood, and I, like I said, I didn't understand it practically, of course. But I heard it and it was, and now I know why I knew it was the truth as well. But essentially what it was that we are here and all we're doing is playing a game. And when you understand the rules of the game, 
And when you understand who the players in the game are, then this world is easy to navigate and it's easy to understand. And then it's easy to also understand and see why people are horrible to each other because you can see the game that they're playing. We're all playing the same game, but in our heads, our games can often be different. And things like, I'll give you an example. Why is it that, say, for example, you're in a relationship, you're both sat I don't know, watching a film together, you're both fine. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you end up in an argument about something, the most ridiculous thing, but nothing in your external world has actually changed. And then being able to look back at it and being like, oh, you're being played. I can see that you're being played. And the reason why I say that, let me not be too mystical about these things, is that the player in the game, the main player is your mind. Your mind is playing against the five thought creating forces. And the thing that you need to do to be able to understand this world is to eliminate thoughts. And thoughts are the cause of all our pain. And thoughts manifest themselves in very different ways as well. And now if I connect it back to the story that you told me about your mother or the stories that I was being told afterwards, all these are people's thoughts that they then manifest or and or they tell each other to then give you more thoughts. And then you create this inner monologue And then you add to that inner monologue, which then you end up defining who you are, defining how other people are. And I started realizing from that point onwards that the thing that one needs to do is eliminate thoughts and take control of your mind and think when you need to think and not be led by thoughts. All of that happened on that one day. And I was just like bombarded because I was like, oh, my God, what does that all mean? But (laughs) I knew it was the truth. Mm. And the reason why I knew it was the truth as well is because at the end of the day, your mind when you start going through this journey and have this kind of inner sense of clarity, knowledge, peace, and what have you, wisdom, all of these things kick in quite naturally. And your mind is a light and it's existed for a very long time. And the game is that the mind has been separated from the source. That's the game. The game was, I'm going to separate you from myself, source, separate. Now, all you need to do is find your way back to me. Find your way, the mind needs to go back to its original source. And when it starts doing that, and all of that happens inside, it doesn't happen outside. When it starts doing that, when the pull back to the source like that, that say that, you know, the way a kite flies and then it's got a string, the more you keep pulling that string back to where it's coming from, Mm -hmm. the deeper the connection becomes. And then how do I know that's the truth? Because your mind, your heart, your soul is all the same thing. It's the light. We just use different words for them. But you know, when you say to somebody, let's have a heart to heart, your organ and their organ isn't having a heart to heart. It's their mind, your thinking, your connection. That's what's having the heart to heart in inverted commas. And that's what happened on that day. Your mind knows, deep knows truth. It knows the difference between right and wrong. We then make up a story because if we want to do something, we'll make up a story. If we want to do something in inverted commas wrong, we'll make up a story to allow ourselves to do it. So therefore we don't feel any type of guilt or remorse for doing it. But the reality is your heart, your mind knows the difference. And that day, the reason why I knew it was the truth is because my mind knew that this is it. You found it. Yeah. You recognized it. You couldn't understand all of it in one go, but you recognized it for what it was. Exactly. And enough to know that I need to keep coming and I need to know more. And slowly, the other thing that you realize is that it's a practice. It's a daily practice until the moment you die. It's a daily practice to keep on top of your mind and control it. I'm so glad I asked that question. (laughs) (laughs) So 
It's interesting because I'm trying to keep my thoughts away so I can listen to you and be very present to what you're relaying to me. There's an echo of several things that are coming to me because I've studied Kashmir Shaivism, Buddhism, and mindfulness. And I do find that there are common threads and similar practices, though they may be called different things. And I want to perhaps color what you said, and you can stop me, to say to people who think it's impossible to quieten the mind, that when our minds feel spacious and not we don't feel bombarded with thought, our mind, heart, body scenario, our, <laughs> ourself, feels more at ease. We feel more whole and home in ourselves. And I think that the natural wisdom that you talk in that emerges from this place of spaciousness is just, is our natural state, the one that you were explaining we have been removed from. There's one thing that I wanted to add maybe is, and this is a saying that I heard from a teacher or a book a long time ago, and I thought it was really helpful. It's our discursive mind is part of what you were saying is the game, right? This is what we come to earth with and our dealings with it is going to be the maker or the breaker of many situations or perhaps our entire lives. But it's also difficult, I think, to demonize thoughts. Demonizing thoughts, I don't think, brings the best in us. If you are that kind of player that you're just go and slay thoughts, I think that perhaps bringing, and I don't know, you'll explain to me how Simran works, but what I appreciate with the approach of Buddhism and mindfulness, other contemplative and reflective practices, meditative practices of it, I've explored, is bringing non-judgment or a caring attitude really helps with dealing with the contents of the mind. But so the quote I wanted to give you is, the mind produces thought the same way that mouth produces saliva. So once you know that, you can also stop identifying with the thoughts as if they were true. Because if it's just a function of the mind, then you can start to find the space between who you are, your own light, as you were describing, and the product of the mind. How does that sit with you? As you were saying, and you mentioned different practices, I guess I want to use this opportunity to mm. maybe share with your listeners this idea of Simran and yes, Sticky, because now with the touring exhibition, which we haven't spoken about, and we'll no doubt connect that in a second, but with the touring exhibition of Journey of the Mind, we're encountering so many different people. And it's been the most kind of humbling experience to have people share their points of views, their lived experiences, their difficulties with us, and then for them to encounter an alternative way of thinking. So without me trying to explain what the difference is with Simran is compared to the other practices. I'll just say what Simran actually does. And to your point, the elimination of thoughts is no judgment of them or you. It's just that, like you said, it is the nature of the game, not the nature of the mind. It's the nature of the game. And the idea of eliminating thoughts is also, in some places, it is a battle. And in certain places, it just becomes quite subtle. And it's just a quiet thing. Oh, no, you're not coming in, though. But what it is, like I said, it's thinking when you need to think. So for example, you and I are now in a scenario where we have to engage with each other. You've asked me questions where I need to access some part of my memories, where I need to go back and think of a story and connect those dots. So I'm thinking, I am thinking, I'm taking thoughts to make sense of it. 
Now, once we finish this interview, we finish this conversation, I will then switch off. I don't need to think anything more of this unless we need to do something with it. But then after this conversation, I will need to think, oh, I've got to do the next thing. All of those functional thoughts are in the game. Let's say if we talk about it from a game perspective, are allowed. You need those. I'm hungry. I need to think about going to eat something. But when I'm eating or when I'm preparing my food, I don't need to have the thousands of other thoughts about the argument I had, the anxiety that I'm feeling. This is doing this to me. Just be there doing what you need to do and then do the next thing. So there's also, for example, the concept of seva, which is the work that we do with the exhibition, which is Mm. I need to think about that. I need to think about what is this project going to do? Who else do I need to meet? What does it look like? All of these things, they're totally fine to have Mm. them. But when you don't need to have them, switch off. So i.e. you finished work, stop thinking about it. Unless you need to think about something for the next day, mm. then stop thinking about it. Don't constantly have it lived up. Because what happens is once you continue to have the thoughts, then you fall into those thoughts that you shouldn't have. So say, for example, with work, you go to work. The main reason we have to understand we work, ultimately, let's break it down to, to put food on our tables to have Mm -hmm. a house, a roof over our head, to get clothes on our bodies. Work tends to be quite a functional thing. Obviously, your work can be your passion. Now, listen, if you're going to do something for eight hours a day, you might as well love it and enjoy it and make it a contribution to society. A hundred (laughs) percent. That's definitely there. But let's not confuse that with inner work that needs to be done. I'm always really conscious of the language because unfortunately, the English language limits spirituality in a huge way. So when I say enlightenment, I don't mean it in that Buddhist sense. Yeah. I don't mean it in the Christian sense. There's, enlightenment means so many different things through Sikhi. But to get those things, your work is never going to help you do that. What is the word that you use? So for us, so for example, I'll have to do it through the journey. Like You start doing Simran. So mm-hmm. Simran is a focused practice for the mind. It is not meditation. It looks and sounds like meditation because it just does, but it's because it eliminates thoughts. It's not asking you to observe thoughts. It's also not body related, as in you don't focus on your breath. You don't focus on a part of your body because the mind is a light and the rest of your body is physical. It is going to die. And when it dies, your mind doesn't die in the same sense as your body. It's a continuous light, but you can teach you can practice death before it actually happens. And I'll talk about that in a second. So you've got the mind, you've got Simran. Then when you do Simran, as thoughts start to eliminate, you start hearing a sound inside, a series of sounds inside. And they're called the Shabad. Now, the soon as you get to Shabad, that's almost like enlightenment in the sense that you will now not come back into this life form again and again. So in Sikhi, there's 8.4 million life forms that your mind goes through. And the whole purpose of this game is to get out of that 8.4 million life Mm. forms, that reincarnation. And you, as a human, it is the ultimate life form that you can be is because you have the awareness to know how to do it. That same light, that same mind that I talk about is in all of the 8.4 living life forms. It's in everything. It's in animals. It's in trees. It's in plants. Every living thing has it. But what they don't have, they don't have the ability to do this, which is to figure out why am I here and how do I get out of it? If we are in the fortunate position to have a human life, then Mm. human life is to figure out why are we here? Mm. Human life is to ask about those big questions and do something about it. Because with all due respect, 
me working in fashion, such and such designing the best cars or the best houses, having the best spaceships and everything is going to make no difference to your inner world, into your inner life. So the idea is how do you do both together? So when mm. you start hearing this Shabbat inside and you start following that sound, then your practice changes. You now start listening to that sound. You follow that sound is coming from the source and will take you directly back to that source by following it. Mm. And that is the practice of doing Simran. And if I was to say other practices that I've researched, they only get to you to a certain point. And what I've found is that where other practices finishes is where Simran starts. So it's good to do all those other practices. It's fine. There's no judgment on anyone's choices. And that's the other thing, beautiful thing about Sikhi. It has no judgment in anyone else's practice. It's do whatever practice you want to do, whatever you want to do that makes sense to you, but do it with full conviction. It's mm -hmm. always the thing. So yes, I'm not sure I've answered the question or oh, you I did. digressed the conversation. No, you did. And it was really helpful. So I have two follow-up questions. Can you explain, and I've used your website and I did do some research on Simran, but would you explain what the practice actually entails for anyone who wants to understand it better and perhaps wants to give it a try? Yeah, absolutely. Simran is, like I said, it's the focus practice of the mind in which you do two things at the beginning. First, you put your full focus in your own voice. You don't put it on a breath. You don't put it on a part of your body. Just sit comfortably, however you want to lie down, sit, stand, whatever. Sitting normally helps than standing, especially because you've got your eyes closed. Now, your mind is subtle and it sits in the pupil of the eyes. So it's not in the eyes, but that's where it sees the world from. So you close your eyes and you put your full focus in your own voice. And what I mean by focus is it's almost as if you've got your eyes closed and you're looking at your voice. So you're putting it down here. I'm so sorry. I know that we are. I'm it's audio and I can see your face. Yeah, I know. <laughs> exactly. So as I'm trying to be like, close your eyes and look at your own voice. Now listen to your own voice. As you say a two syllable word, it can be any word. It can be great, full, happy. Just don't make it a word that's going to give you is going to give you more thoughts. Make it an sure. abstract word that you can't recognize. I.e., don't don't do pizza, right? You're going to start <laughs> thinking of pizza. So when we do Simran, we use the Guru Mantra, why Guru? But like I said, you can use anything. So for example, when we sometimes do it, we do live truth. So again, focus on your own voice. That's why it's called a focused practice. And the practice is that you're going to have to keep doing it again and again, because you'll find that in one minute, you'll be able to control your mind for two seconds. But the more you do it, that two seconds will become five, it will become 10, like you'll slowly build up on it, but it's a practice. Now, the important thing is your voice is the most important thing. You need to start to be able to hear yourself doing it. Mm -hmm. Because no doubt, as you're doing it, your mind will wonder and your mind will wonder in two ways. It will either get distracted by a noise on the outside you'll hear something, a beep of a car, something in the kitchen, whatever it is. You'll get distracted by, oh, I think I've got an itch in my shoulder or what have you. And then the other way you'll get distracted on the inside is that it will, it will start doing this practice, but at the same time, simultaneously, it will start thinking about, oh, when I finish this, <laughs> maybe I'll go and do that. And then I'll go and meet, I'll go and meet him. And then once I've met him, oh, but do you remember the last time I met him, that happened. And then, oh my God, why did that happen 10 years ago? 
And then it will just start to Mm. wander. And that's what it does. That's why it's just got into this habit of wandering. And the focus practice is that it's the constant bringing it back. And then you'll find that the more you bring it back, the more your thoughts will start calming down and slowly they will start eliminating. So that's the start of it. And that's what Simran is. Hold on, quick question. Yeah. I'm not super up to date with this, but I have read in in several papers and newspapers and academic studies that were quoted that one of the moments that we become the most creative is when we let our minds wander and you are a creative and you operate from a place of letting yourself be creative. Do you find that you do let that sort of spontaneous arising of thought and how does that work with the elimination part of it? It's such a beautiful question because when I first started doing Simran, a big part of me was like, as a creative, when I go and wander and I daydream, that's when the ideas come. That's when the creative flow kicks in. So now what's going to happen? So I was always a little bit apprehensive of it. But again, like I said, when you start to think when you need to think, then watch the ideas flooding in. So when I first started doing Simran and I stopped myself from daydreaming, But the moment I sit down and I need to come up with an idea, I might use the same practice. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with Mm. going for a walk to then think about actually there's a project that I want to do. And this is what I need to do. That still will come in. That's fine. You're allowed to have those functional thoughts, but it's just being able to control them. And if I can be so bold in the work that I do now as the artistic director of Without Shape, Without Form, the arts organization that I run, when you start working on a higher consciousness and you start working for something that is so true, um, it's going to be hard for me to describe it because some of these things that I'm saying, they can make sense in theory and you can connect to them, but they really only deeply resonate when you go through the practice yourself. So all I can say is that the work that I do now, I do it in two ways, which is I give it 120%. I give it all my effort with them. I give it everything. But I am not in control of the result. And just in case we don't believe that to be true, just look at what happened at COVID. We all thought that we were in control of our lives. And overnight, that control was taken away from us. Nothing is in our control in that sense. Effort and the fact that I wake up in the morning and I've got the best intention to do the great work that I do, That is, but I've let go of the result. And therefore, when I let go of the result, it means that I don't stress. I don't carry stress around with me. I don't worry about things. All I know that I can do is that today I need to do this much and I need to be able to achieve this and I need to make sure that presentation is the best that it can be. And then after that, I'm like, there's nothing more I can do. Me constantly thinking about it after I've pressed send is not going to determine or influence the result. Do you know, I think that I asked my question too quickly, but I'm glad you answered it because I do realize as well that when you already have a lot of spaciousness in your mind, then then I can see why creativity is not so much of a problem. It's the crowdedness of the anxiety and the other thoughts that are the problem. We're going to have to make this a two-part conversation because we have 20 minutes left on the clock and I have not even hit half of what I want to ask. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, this is great. This is, so, this is so exciting. I'm interested in the power of the voice. At which point do you go silent? And also I read, and correct me where I'm wrong, that one of the things that you use as Sikhis for Simran is the 10 names of God. So you told me about Waheguru, but... 
There's also Satnam, if I'm correct, and others. Is this choice important? Okay. No, it's, the technique is important. The word that you choose isn't. We, out of respect, will use the word Waiguru, which means wonderful, greatest being, source, God, whatever. I'm like again. I say again, this conversation might come through when we talk about the exhibition. Personally, I do not speak about Sikhi as a religion because in Sikhi there are ten teachers. Now, if you have a teacher, then what's the student? Now, the term Sikhi or to be a Sikh is to be a learner, to be a student. Who's the learner? Not my body, my mind. The mind is the learner. Now, therefore, and the first guru out of the 10 human gurus, and the reason why I say human gurus is because the 10th teacher says that now, and the 10 teachers span over about 250 years. The 10th teacher says that from now on, everything that you need to know about the mind, Everything you need to know about this world and this existence and what you're here for is now in the 11th Guru, which are our sacred scriptures. Right. Those sacred scriptures are written by the people that have traveled on this journey. They're not written by someone who told them that this is what happens. It's by them. It's specifically them telling you. And so there is complete continuity and resonance in their stories. They might face different challenges inside and outside, but all of the points of how to do it, that journey is exactly the same. And what I love about this is that spiritual evolution has no time. You can't even use the words together because it's existed before, it will exist in the future and it exists now and it's exactly the same. The journey is exactly the same. The signposts are exactly the same. And this is why we use the sacred scriptures to check in and be like, oh, hang on one second. This just happened to me inside oh yeah, there it is. It says that this is going to happen. And then you do it like that. And then that teacher-student relationship is really important one. So those 10, again, the reason why I'm saying that is the word out of respect, like I said, we use the word Waiguru, but it doesn't matter because after a while on your journey of Simran, you almost let go of using a word in any case. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is, so say for example, my personal story, I use the word Waiguru, Waiguru, Waiguru. Now what started to happen is I don't even need to say it. My mind will automatically start saying it. We'll start doing it. And it doesn't matter whether it's saying live, truth, happy, whatever my mind is now saying, all I can check in on. And this whole journey is about self-discovery and it's about self-reflection. It's about you constantly reflect. Therefore, when you are reflective and you are calm, all of those attributes start coming into your mind, you will resonate them. And that's why there'll be human connection because other people will connect to you and be like, how come you're always so calm? How come you're always this? It's because inside my mind is pretty chilled. Basically, when your mind starts doing it, and how do I define the mind? How do you know what the mind is? And let me do a little technique thing with you, right? And I'm just going to ask you now, and I know that we are audio and not visual. I'm going to ask you, say hello to me. Hello. Okay, now say hello to me without moving your mouth, moving any physical part of you, without moving your tongue, but literally shout hello to me. Done. Did you do it? Done, yeah. right? That thing that just did it, that's your mind. The thing that said it and the thing that heard it was your mind. Now, when you get that mind to constantly do the repetition of whichever word you choose, all that means is that what that mind is then not doing is taking other thoughts. It's not wandering around. 
it's there, it's with you because it's constantly mm. doing the Simran. Now you're not doing Simran with your mouth. Now you're doing Simran with your mind is the point that we want it to get to. When it starts doing Simran with the mind, there's many other things that will happen, which mm. I won't go into. But when you start hearing then the sound, then that thing that just said hello to me and constantly is doing the Simran, now get it to latch onto the sound and now follow the sound. And so even now when I'm talking to you, I'm able to hear the sound. I'm able to talk to you and also listen. It's like mm. driving that I can physically drive a car and I can physically talk to the person next to me. Mm. I can split my attention in two ways. These are like your next sort of steps. And that's why the word is irrelevant. It's the technique. That's mm. the most important thing. That's fascinating. Why don't we talk about how Without Shape, Without Form, the exhibition came into existence? So basically, Without Shape, Without Form originally started as an exhibition in 2017 when we thought, hang on one second, we are sitting on this beautiful wealth of knowledge of Simran. Sikhi obviously has been there all this time, but the actual genuine practice of Simran is, is such a profound one. It should be shared. So we came up with this idea of doing an exhibition in 2017. I had the privileged position in which I was asked to, if I could navigate it. I'd never done an exhibition before, but as I've already said, I wanted to be an artist. So I was like, okay, putting an exhibition together will be cool. I was fortunate enough to bring in graphic designers from the world of fashion, from Vogue Russia, actually, at the time. A dear friend of mine, Brendan Althorpe, helped us design the whole exhibition. That exhibition, Without Shape, Without Form, was only meant to be on for 15 days. On its opening day, it had 4,500 people come through the door in three hours. And then it showed us, actually, hang on, there's a huge need and connection for this. And at that time, it, it was really very much only the sort of South Asian communities that were coming to see it. We didn't do much marketing. We didn't know much about these things. And then the Arts Council had come to see us and really were impressed by what we had done. Guru Manu Granth Gurdwara, which is the Gurdwara, the Sikh temple that I go to and do the Simran, is on a four-acre site. And at the front of the building lends itself to gallery space because it used to be the old Citroen headquarters. So the showroom was there. So it naturally is a gallery. So we did that. The Arts Council came to see us and were like amazed by the work that we were doing and said, how can we support you? Then with their support, we opened our second exhibition in 2019 in November, like everything else that closed a few months later. And then in 2021, after most of the lockdown, as a team, we got together and was like, we've got these two amazing exhibitions. So now Without Shape, Without Form was an exhibition, then it turned into a gallery. And then now it's about to transform into an arts organization because we decide that in 2021 that we're going to reimagine the two exhibitions, reinterpret them and take them on tour. And that tour is now called Journey of the Mind. And it is a journey of the mind, understanding of the mind, what it's here to do, what, how to understand the game, all through the lens of the Sikh teachings. And it's been to Birmingham, Glasgow. Bristol, it's in Nottingham at the moment. And the most amazing thing is we're talking about the Library of Birmingham, Calvin Grove Art Gallery and Museum, the V&A Dundee, Contemporary Art Gallery like the Arnold Feeney. We're at the New Art Exchange at the moment. So it's interesting to share these stories in spaces in and around art. And I think the way I can wrap that whole thing up for me, myself personally mm. is now all my worlds have collided. I just had the Skinder Hundle, the global director of arts for the British Council, came on Saturday 
and was just looking at the exhibition. And there's so many layers to the exhibition, which is the art, but the transformative education, the things that we're talking about today are very much there. But then the other third thing is that we are always with the exhibition as sevadars, as volunteers. Now, we are people that practice what you're reading about. So therefore, there is a connection to us because we embody the exhibition. So now, what? how does one define contemporary art? How does one define a, an exhibition? So we're opening up so many different conversations and different curatorial practices, which is a really exciting one. But our real main purpose is that the concept of bala, the betterment of others. So if we are sitting on this amazing knowledge, then therefore you should have access to it because the mind is a seek. The mind is the learner. We all have a mind and we're all trying to learn. So therefore, these are universal teachings. They so happened to have started 550 years ago in India for a very, very decent reason, which is the biggest population and the richest population, the most evolved part of the world 550 years ago was in India, was around those areas. So it made sense that these stories started there. But the mm. only thing is, 300 years after that, they shouldn't have stopped there. They should have carried on. And yeah. now our work is that to really share this amazing mm. body of knowledge and these techniques with everyone to be like, hey, listen, if you're suffering, there is zero reason, like zero, zero mm. reason to suffer. Wonderful. I really appreciate you giving context to Without Shape, Without Form. Now, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about the year off that you took before that existed and what seva means, because it's not just an altruistic form of service. There's a deeper layer into it. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. So 2019, July, I had the opportunity with 150 other people from around the world to come to Guru Manu Granth Gurdwara and take a year to sort of progress your spiritual practice and your journey and if those were if you're fortunate to do it I'm not quite sure why everybody wouldn't jump to the opportunity because we spend what is it we start working from the age of 20 to 65 committing and investing in our financial passion but why do we not do that on the inside so I thought one year from the inside yeah so I had that opportunity to do that and all I remember thinking at the beginning of that one year which obviously as you already know July 19 was meant to carry on to July 22 20, but then that gets stopped in March of 2020. But all I knew was that I wanted to come away with that, with some sort of transformation. And I think little did I understand that transformation was always going to be a spiritual one for sure. But it was also going to be a physical one in the sense that my career was also going to get transformed at the same time that I was... <laughs> Yeah, I'm laughing on the other side. Yeah, that's the, when you work on your spiritual journey, your career is going to change, basically. Yeah, completely. But we're so naive when we get into that. That's really funny. But this is it. It's because we have so much ego thinking that I control the decisions. and that I can even say that. Let's put spirituality to one side. I wouldn't, if somebody told me that you are going to be working at Day East, I wouldn't have thought no. And then when I got into the indie world, that somebody was going to tell me that I was going to be working at the most glossiest magazine, Vogue. No, I never wanted that. And then after that, you're going to be working for Tatler. Forget it. Like when, at what point in my career did I ever think that? That's hilarious. But it happened, yeah. right? And in this sense that I'm definitely like, really like questioning my time in the industry being like, surely I could be doing something more profound and more giving. And I'll connect this to Siva. So then in July of 2019, we start this 
program, which was intense. We started with doing eight hours of Simran a day. Just before we'd finished, we were doing over 16 hours a day. And it was only going to progress from that. So you can only imagine that if you're doing something for 16 hours a day, like what's going to happen to your mind, right? You're just building that foundation. It's becoming solid. Your spiritual foundation is becoming solid. This leads in nicely to, so when lockdown happened, everybody who came from different parts of the world goes back to their respective countries and their homes. I'm fortunate enough that I live like 20 minutes away from the Gurdwara, so I was never living there. However, I did it in reverse. Then what we decided, there's five of us that decided that, listen, now the world needs us. There was such like food scarcity, people that are in vulnerable positions, how can we help them? So we started a food program and started doing shifted our internal seva to external seva, which is helping the people in and around the community. But what happened in 90 days, we worked with 135 charities in and around London. We served 1 million hot meals, cooked and delivered those to those charities and redistributed 470 tons of food. None of us had ever done anything like this. It's not like any of us had worked with food operations, but we learned really quickly. We got our certificates online. We started figuring these things out. And why is that? Like when you have intention and hard work put together and then you leave the results up to whoever makes those results, which is that higher being, the source, God, whatever you want to name it, everything is possible. And the idea of seva, which as you said, is selfless service, but it's not volunteering. It's not, I decide to give up two hours a week to do this. It's actually part of Sikhi. It's deeply rooted in our very being, this idea of always giving back, that nothing belongs to you. And therefore, we are here in service of. And now if you think about it, I don't know if you must have come across this, but when you're trying to do career moves or when you're doing that, but like, you know, don't work, serve. These kind of concepts are now coming through in business as well. Mm -hmm. But this is something we have known and is in our spiritual DNA is this Mm -hmm. idea of diminishing. There's two different types of seva. The physical seva will diminish your ego. So that could be like the food program, doing serving other people and being like, I'm not at the center of things. But then the other seva that you do is the seva of the source, the seva of Waiguru inside by doing the Simran, which Mm -hmm. then aligns you. And then when you put the two together, your external seva and your internal seva. So therefore, everything that we do it with full focus in the practice of Simran, Mm -hmm. everything you touch, almost it turns to gold. And it always works out and it grows. So imagine now applying that to your life and then applying that to your work or your practice and having this idea of not having ego, not being jealous, not being angry, not gossiping. And then, but really doing that from the inside out, because from the outside, I could look like a saint. I could look like, oh, look, she does so much. But on the inside, I know what you mean. Horrible, angry (laughs) thoughts. Then the two don't match and the two have to match. Your inside and your outside need to align. I hear you. (laughs) I totally hear you. It really is about that sort of inner work that that this is really what matters. In our first chat, right, before the podcast interview, I really wanted to talk to you about what connection means to you and what disconnection means to you. Great question. (laughs) I guess this kind of the thinking around connection, disconnection for me, it's been more prevalent since the exhibition has been in Nottingham because it came up at the beginning when I did actually the speech for the opening night. And I guess for me, 
Connection is when you have that true, dare I use the word again, connection from the inside. So basically yeah. when you do Simran, you start hearing something called Anhad Shabad or Shabad or however you want to call it. But from the inside, these aren't external sounds, they're internal sounds. And when you start hearing them, what happens is that there are different varying sounds, but there's a specific sound that will happen. And then that sound also, you will hear it 24-7. And then the next mission in or your next endeavor in your journey is to then start listening to that sound and attaching your mind to that sound. I know we did that hello exercise, that thing that says yeah. hello. <laughs> the thing, so that thing that talks to you and sees everything without these external eyes, the things that hears everything without these external ears. And that thing, which is the mind, it can also walk, right? Because you travel, your mind, you can take it wherever you want. Now, when that thing, which is the mind essentially, starts listening to the sound, now that's an actual tangible, practical connection, right? So that's what I mean by connection. But through that connection, what starts to happen is that the mind becomes content. It becomes peaceful. It starts to rise above thoughts. The journey starts from listening from one point, but then you have to carry on following that sound. And ultimately that sound is going to take you to the point of all connection to the source. So along that journey of listening and constantly focusing on it or as I'm talking to you, splitting my attention and listening and talking to you, what it does is slowly it starts to pull you up. It starts to, you start to rise above. We spoke about the ups and downs of life, the highs and lows of life. And life isn't about the up and down, it's rising above it. And then following this sound, following that connection takes you to true connection. So what we're talking about is peace, clarity, Happiness in a way that we would never be able to understand, but you can also start making sense of the world, sense of why we're here. And also it pulls you up to sort of ultimate knowledge as well and ultimate clarity and knowing what's going on. Now, the good way to understand it maybe is by understanding what disconnection is then. So disconnection is being bombarded by thoughts. Disconnection is the chaos that happens in our mind. Disconnection ultimately leads us to things like anxiety, depression, isolation, loneliness. All of those things are disconnection. And what we tend to do is we try to find connection on the outside, try to make connections or people. Or, and ultimately what happens is they end up just being distractions, which then pull us away from true connection. So that's what I mean. And that's what I'm starting to unpack more and more as I go along my own journey as well. It's interesting because, of course, I don't know much about Simran and I hear what you're describing and I feel like I can find a sense of connection of what you're talking about. And the one thing that I can equate between what you're saying about the connection to that sound and the sense of the mind being at ease is I understand that our minds do not like to be split. When our attention is split, or sometimes I would say even fragmented across many things, 
that's when we feel the most unsettled, whether that's a result of stress, too many stimuli, regardless of what's going on in our environment. I understand that our minds feel most at ease. We feel most at peace when our mind is gathered in one place. And so what I'm hearing you tell me is that this ability to connect to this sound through the practice of Simran gives the mind that That unity that we lack on a daily basis, that we're not capable of keeping because of the necessary practice that is needed to get to that stage. I guess the thing that you're speaking about, like where our mind gets uneasy with splitting its attention, because normally we're trying to split it for an external factor. We're splitting it because I need to get this done and this done, or I'm doing this, but I can't make sense of something that's happened at home for example, or I'm in the middle of this and it's splitting me this way, or I'm talking to you, but inside my mind is being bombarded. But when you're focused on the inside, that splitting again is happening. There's functionality. There is, in all of this, I've spoken to you about Simran and eliminating thoughts. Now, a good question, a very good question that gets asked a lot is, yeah, but if I don't think, if I don't have any thoughts, how am I going to function? And I'm like, Okay, that goes slightly deeper into the game, but obviously you're allowed Mm. functional thoughts. You have to eat, you have to go to work. If you've got children, you still got to raise them. You've got duties, you got other things. That's the part of the game. But the idea is, are we able to do all of those functional things that we do have to do for the existence of our bodies, but still not get distracted by what our ultimate goal is in being able to control the mind and connect the mind? back up to that, the source, the oneness that we all actually come from. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's a practice. And that's why we call it a practice. It's not something that you could <laughs> wish and pray for. You have to work for it. And then one thing is there isn't necessarily an end goal. The process, the journey in itself is a beautiful one and an incredibly educational one as well. Like you learn so much more importantly about yourself right? You learn so much about yourself. And then when we talk about strength, courage, all of these kind of big affirmations that come from the external world, where it's just be strong, just do it and stuff like that. All of those things actually truly start making sense to you. And I've got to be honest with you, growing up, going through some difficult times, reading those kind of things used to make me go, yeah, I feel good. I feel positive. I've read it. And then within 10 seconds, you're like, yeah, but how? Like, how do I be strong? Like, just do it. Or like you dream of is possible. Uh, Okay, yeah, but it's just not as simple as that. Like there's a process that kind of goes in between. And for me, that's why like Simran has been the most transformative thing that's ever happened to me because everything that I think I understood on a subconscious level from a young age started to make sense. And then the rest of the world started to make sense to me as well. Hmm. I am trying not to think. (laughs) I'm attempting to not make up my mind as to where to go next so that I can absorb what you said. I understand what you mean regarding functional thoughts. And I think that the way that I was approaching the fragmentation, I think that it's a factor. I wasn't thinking about it necessarily just on a external level but I think that Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just our inner voice that narrator is Mm -hmm. multiple 
it's in conflict with itself. I think that what you're saying was pulling me to consider is really that the inner conflict and the lack of unity of what I consider we'll call like the inner voice or the, I like to call it the inner roommate. (laughs) (laughs) What I have found in some friends of mine who struggle with mental health, anxiety, high stress levels, or even depression is that it's that inner monologue constantly putting the host down Mm -hmm. (laughs) that really makes it impossible for them to connect to any stronger aligned united sense of self because it's always that battle of not good enough not worthy etc cetera, etc cetera. anyway i'm getting away from this but it does have a connection to my question <laughs> because i think that this is a, a, effectively also a, a sign of great disconnection it, exactly spot on you said it and that the thing about what you said about the fragmentation and you're in a roommate sometimes taking over and causing self-doubt, it is what it does. It's part of the game. Now, when it plays against, the mind plays against the five thought-creating forces, that's the game. It's going to happen. There's no guilt in that and there's no fault in that. That's just the nature of the game. And in that moment, one has to understand and feel that there is hope, that there's a way out of that. There's a way of making sure that in a roommate is a friendly one and knows where it belongs or what have you. And sometimes we give that example of, um, imagine if you lived in a country and you were an illegal immigrant, for example, and you just wandered around, you're always in fear, right? You're going to get caught out. You're going to get caught at some point. But imagine living in your own land. And I'm so sorry, this might either be a timely example or a really bad yeah. example. But imagine living in your own land in which it's yours and you're free to roam it. You know what the rules of that land are, but at the same time, you're a free citizen almost to live in that. And then imagine what that feels. And I'm talking about the mind, right? The mind needs that passport. It needs those legal papers to be able to do it. And, and th- that sound is that. And I'm talking about the mind. God forbid somebody's listening to this and is trying to put this analogy to the external world. Like, sure. it's not that. <laughs> I'm very much about how we're almost like illegal immigrants in our own heads. And then how are we to connect? Okay, that word's going to keep coming up now that we've used it. How are you, you know, How are you meant to find that true connection? And like I said about 10 minutes ago, I was like, that true connection, there's one thing having like-minded people on the outside, which is your your community and what have you, that's one thing because they're going to support you. You're going to have conversations like this. They're going to say something like along the lines that, hey, listen, sometimes my mind feels like it's a roommate that isn't paying rent on time and is always being disruptive, never turns the music down. Is just when I need to do something, it does something else. So it is part of you. It's your community that will remind you, will have this conversation with you and just say, but remember, we were supposed to do this and this. And then you're like, oh, yeah. So that's your external connection and community. That is also important. But the work that needs to be done is all inner work. Mm. Thanks so much. Yeah, I think that these are two good analogies. I like to use the analogy of, a, of your ideal home. So if you imagine your ideal home and everyone's going to have a different one, right? It could yeah. be a palace, it could be a boat. Yeah. <laughs> it could be a penthouse apartment in New York. Yeah. And then just imagine that you have the 
best time in your life. Like every room is perfect. In winter, it's ideal. In summer, it's cool and breezy. And you feel like it's the safest, most amazing place in the world. And then imagine that you have the worst roommate in the world and that you are never left alone. Exactly. And then I was thinking that the bad living environment that you can be in within your own mind, the bad living arrangements that you have, it causes you to behave a different way in the world. If you think of what it's like when you do live with someone who's disruptive and you do not have peace at home, you don't show up in the world in the same place, right? Your analogy is perfect because even sacred scriptures say when you find peace at home, you'll find peace outside. Now, Mm -hmm. if you didn't understand that was in reference to the mind, you would think that in my life, in my family, if I've got peace here at home where I live, then I'll find peace there. No, it's about, it actually says that this body that we have is a temple, it's a fort, it's a house, it's a land. And then your mind lives within that fort, within that land, within that palace. Now you have to find peace within that house, within you, and then you will find peace outside Yeah, as well. And yeah, so that's, I think that's a perfect analogy for it. But we've all heard it, right? Treat your body as a temple, what have you. But if we actually really knew that over and above, just look after your body because it's for health purposes, treat it. But actually, no, treat it like a temple because it really is what, because within it, that true connection, that oneness, whatever you want to call it, right? God, why guru resides within it. And that's why you should treat it with kind of total and utter full respect. Be careful what you put inside it. Make sure what comes out, like in terms of what you what you hear, what you speak, it is true. And by that I always by that I always mean in terms of are we speaking ill of people? Are we hearing ill of people? Are we seeing bad things? Thank you. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I know it's going to tie back to the beginning of our interview where we did speak about gossip amongst the many things that is, sorry, I've got a French word coming to me, nocif, bad for us. Now, there's one thing that I wanted to ask you, and I feel like there's a through line between this topic of connection. It's talking about your identity, your own sense of identity. And I heard you speak on a panel about how for the first time, what it was like for you when your personal identity and your creative career finally merged. And in the sense of connection that you found when all of these pieces came together. And I wanted to ask you, what was it like for you to find that alignment? It just all made sense. Like, you spend so much of, I do, I can't speak for everybody. I spend so much of my life trying to make sense of things. By that, I also mean creatively, there's so many cultural things that didn't make sense to me of why am I doing what I'm doing? How did I even get into this? I know there's certain things that just make me truly happy from the outside as well. Looking at viewing art or being exposed to art really does make me happy. And there was so much guilt around it. It's like, how is it that going to a gallery seeing such beautiful work was making me so happy. It didn't make sense to me. None of those things ever made sense to me. And creatively, when you get into flow, when you get into a rhythm of work, you have that one idea and you connect things. All of that kind of didn't make sense. What is going on? So you've got that one element of you. And then you're like, okay, so fine, I'm a creative. And that took me such a long time 
to be able to admit, actually, I'm a creative. I wouldn't even say I'm a stylist, I'm an artist, I'm a painter. I'm a, like, well, any of those things didn't matter. It's just that I'm a creative human being. And then at that time, my, say, for example, my race has never played a huge part in my own life. I've always acknowledged that I am who I am and what have you. There's elements of it I enjoy, but I take from everything. Like I take from all the cultures that I'm exposed to and that I live within. Now, and then at the same time, I'm doing the spiritual journey as well. So there's so many different things and conversations that are happening and I'm just trying to understand myself and that constant feeling of being an imposter, being like, I'm going to get caught out and what have you. And then, yeah, so then when it all aligns, when it all comes together that, yes, you are a creative. Yes, I am a Sikh. I come from an Indian background and what have you. Yes, you're on this spiritual journey. And yes, you are all of those things, but ultimately you are you and you're here for a purpose. Now, how does it feel to start embarking on that journey in which you give up your ego, you move out of your own way? Because you've got to remember nobody systemically, by systemically, I mean society might have been putting these things and maybe I was reading into those cues that the system puts on the conversations around you or the, but I was the one that was ultimately feeding into them or taking them or putting them upon myself. And now when you start slowly start working on diminishing the ego and you move out of your own way, that sort of sense of purpose almost falls upon you. It, it was always been there. Obviously it's always been there, but my thoughts and my thoughts in the form of my ego as well have always been maybe in the way. So when all of that sort of slowly started diminishing, that alignment sort of starts kicking in. And I can't even say in an excited way, I can say it's not that I feel like I'm fully aligned because I just think that it's always going to always be unraveling. That is just the nature of existence. That's the nature of the world. So yeah, it's been a transformation. And for me now, the hard work is I don't know what the future holds and that is just fine. And that I cannot control it. I can't, I never have been able to control it. All I can do is show up every day and do my part. And then acceptance is a huge thing as well. well that's beautiful. Thank you so much. That's very inspiring. And again, is it? I don't know if it is. It just feels like that's just my story. I don't know. Like sometimes when I've heard people saying it's inspiring, I'm like, I'm not quite sure what's so inspiring about it. I'm not, and maybe I shouldn't unpick that today, but. (laughs) (laughs) And that's up to you. I want to say that it sounds like a happy place to be, to go back to our earlier analogy. And I hear you when you say it's WIP, work in progress. (laughs) I think it's the journey, like you said. Exactly. And also I've got to be honest with you, when you do this work, I don't know whether I should say this because it might, automatically be uninspiring but I moments of it are it's really hard work when you really have to face yourself and be so honest with yourself and again the analogy is look yourself in the mirror but by that I mean look at yourself in your internal mirror and be so honest with yourself and be like this is who I am this is what I want to This is what has to change, not even I want to change. And to be honest with you, sometimes you don't even have to ask that. When you start doing Simran, things will automatically start changing. And that's when the realization kicks in. That was like, oh, I can't believe that's the way I used to think. That's the way I used to maneuver in the world and what have you. But yeah, there are moments when it's just, it's really difficult. When you have that sort of realization, 
that everything matters and nothing matters at the same time. Those are big concepts to absorb. Yeah, to hold. Yeah, yeah, that's very complex. That kind of duality is heavy. Completely. And then you have to navigate the world with that because the world is telling you something completely different. The world that we live in is still very much, dare I say, we live in a capitalist world, whereas like your success, your conversations are all around work, things, material things or whatever it is. And then you've got this inner knowledge and then you have to navigate that. But again, all that is, is building your foundation. The more layers of Simran you keep putting into your foundations, the stronger it becomes. And then it just happens that like naturally, you saw it at the beginning of this conversation, we just went straight into it. This happens all the time. You naturally just go straight into this way of talking and this way of thinking, even with other people. Yeah, I do that too. (laughs) That's just part of my personality. (laughs) That's very helpful that you mentioned that it's also difficult because I don't believe that any practice Hmm? is easy. And that's also the point of the journey. Now, I'm going to pull you out of that particular part of our conversation, but I wanted to know, you are currently, so the curator, or is it the artistic director of Without Shape, Without Form, and you are still consultant. So what kind of work do you do as a consultant? Again, still working, she says, I haven't done it now in a year and a half since we've been working on this, but it would be. I'm still working with brands and creating their visual language, creating their visual stories. But the nice thing is actually, because I've been working on this project for now solidly, actually two years, January, oh God, two years, three months. I've been working on this for such a long time. I'm really intrigued to the next consultancy I do, how much of this I will then put it. Obviously, any consultancy is just that, isn't it? You're putting in your experience Uh into whatever, whichever brand that you're working with. But I'm kind of intrigued to see how I will do this one. I'll tell you that in my personal experience, I had no expectations of how much of the journey that I've been on in terms of the studying and teaching yoga and mindfulness. I just thought it was going to be a different part of my life and it would live there and it was not going to affect my work. And that was absolute BS. Yeah. <laughs> and it yeah. has completely transformed how I work. But the interesting thing, in, and to your point about how that change can happen. It felt like it was tectonic plates moving very deep. And so I didn't see or didn't feel the change up until it just erupted at the surface. And I was like, I don't do this anymore. I need to change. (laughs) For me, again, like I said, that there's so many different worlds going on. Mm. That creative aspect is so hugely important to me. And that, and it honestly transpires in different ways. And even within Without Shape, Without Form, it's an exciting opportunity to work with an arts organization in which if I wanted, I could introduce a a fashion line and tomorrow we could do a magazine, we could do podcasts. All of these things are all possible under this banner. But what I look forward to in terms of the consultancy, a little bit to what you just said is, actually, there's one thing that I can tell you about creative language or visual language, storytelling, how to connect uh, with an audience and what have you. But now I can also talk about working culture. Because at the end of the day, any brand is only as good as the people that work for them. Now, what can I introduce to you from that? There's a couple of things. There's one business side of things that I could introduce, which is just don't be fearful. Start putting it out there. Start developing it. What have you. Normally, I would be the kind of person would be like, not until it's ready are we going to showcase it. But no, actually, there's some, there's power and momentum in putting stuff out there. And any brands I've ever worked with, it's never been about the hype. It's always been about the long term. Everything takes time. Building that audience, building that community takes time. But more importantly, 
working culture. Like, how are we working with each other? Now, I can tell you, uh, without Shape Without Form, we're a charity arts organization with 41 volunteers. Now, I have to explain that volunteers is almost, it's doing them injustice by calling them Wissivadars. And I think I spoke about this whole idea of what have you. But mm-hmm. they are now all professionals in their own field. So they're just bringing their professional thing. I'm confident, I'll say, let's not be overly ambitious, but I would say 90% of them, if I said tomorrow, guys, if we could afford to, if you didn't have a livelihood and if we were living in the most idyllic world, I would say to them, are you happy to quit your jobs and do this full time? They would do it within a second, right? So when I talk to other arts organizations or CEOs or artistic directors, I've got the privilege of this team that has been built through the teachings of Sikhi that are completely and utterly vision aligned. Why would they do it? Why would they give up their evenings to do this if they weren't aligned with the vision? And how do you do that? See, those kind of things now I've got a better grasp on, of actually, it's much easier to explain to 41 people that don't really know what they're doing technically in certain fields. I it's super technical, that's different training. Uh, but how do you bring that together? Those things, this working cultures, business, that this practice that I've been doing now for the past two years in creating without shape, without form, I'd easily be able to transform that to most working cultures. That's wonderful. Mm. I'm so glad that this is an area that you can affect change because I agree with you. Perhaps one of the strongest and most important things that I think we need to work on, and and that's the reason why I'm still consulting as well. And I feel like this is probably part of my mission in life is to actually, yeah, make the future of work a bit better because it's about looking after each other. And you're right. The vision alignment is so essential because if we don't understand what we're working towards, then there is no purpose inherently. Exactly. And the other thing that I've been approached a lot, which it's all of these things are just so funny. I wanted to say serendipitous. Clearly, I definitely do not believe in that concept. And I don't believe in the concept of coincidences either. But I got approached by a really big IT conference company called Gartner last year to speak at one of their conferences in, in Barcelona. Now, who would have thought two years ago, three years, 10 years ago, that I would be going to Barcelona to speak at an IT conference. That doesn't even make sense. But it was one little program and it was Alternative Ways to Leadership. And it was women in IT as well. So you think like, how do I fit in? For me, it was such a huge learning of a different sector in itself. But to be able to sit on that stage and tell these women about what I do, how I do it, how I navigated Vogue, Tatler, what does leadership look like in the background when I've got a spiritual practice kind of going on as well? And how do I affect change in that? It was incredibly powerful. I just never thought, see, again, it goes back to those things. I don't really know what the future holds. It's like the opportunity will present itself. And then at that moment, I'll try and make the best decision. And when you've got that connection from the inside, most of your decisions are going to be good because you're doing them from the right place. You're doing them with a fresh and clear mind as well. Yeah. So speaker opportunities is now a funny one for me. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) I wish I'd been there. Let me know about the next one. (laughs) I will do for sure. I know Gartner. I wanted to ask if someone was interested listening to us in giving Simran a try, what would you direct them to do? What would be a resource for them to go to? I would actually maybe first and foremost, tell them to go to the without shape, without form, um, 
website without shape without form.com and on there we have a page called simran and we have a page called content where you'll just find a very short two and a half minute video which just introduces simran to you that would be the first sort of resource i would say and then secondly if you happen to be in the uk obviously come to the exhibition so that you can understand the concept in a little bit more um, detail and we're doing so much programming around it as well like doing in-person simran sessions as well Wonderful. And so where is the exhibition this year? So at the moment, it's in Nottingham. Mm -hmm. It's at the New Art Exchange up until April the 22nd. And then I think in May, we will announce where it's going to next. How exciting. Now, before I get to my closing questions, is there anything else that you think we haven't shared with our listeners or anything that you'd like to add? God, it's just, it's one of those things that you could talk about for such a long time. No, I don't know. Do you think there is anything? Do you feel like, yeah, no, I think it's kind of quite good. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think we're good. We've covered a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So these questions I like to ask all of my guests because they make me happy. I think I get a lot of joy from hearing everyone's answers. And sometimes it's also very moving. So the first one is... It's what is your favorite word, but think of it as a word that you could technically tattoo on yourself or live with for a while. That one for me would have to be why grew, right? It kind of goes, yeah, it would be. <laughs> yeah, it kind of goes without saying the word that I actually do Simran to would be that. And if I haven't said it before, but that word can be anything for anyone, like that two syllable word. So yeah, for me, it would have to be that one. Wonderful. <laughs> What song best represents you? Oh, I don't know if I can actually answer this question because there, there's just this, this too, it's too much. <laughs> there's so much. And then also what time, when and how, like, I think we're forever changing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and actually, and I was kind of thinking, is there anything like within Siki that I might have heard recently? I did wonder that, that too, actually, whether there was know, a chant that perhaps felt like it was. So it wouldn't be. Okay, let's say it like this. So it's not a song. It's, it's part of Keith and Shabbat that we do. And it's just this one line. And I'll have to give you the translation. And the translation sure. is just simply, it's just simply as whatever's happened has happened. Keep moving forward. Literally, I think that is its direct just keep moving forward and keep sorting yourself out moving forward. Don't look backwards. Oh, wonderful. Will you give me yeah. the details of the track? Can I find yeah. it online? I'll find it for you and send it to you. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. What is the sweetest thing that's ever happened to you? Oh, this, you know, that first moment when I got to hear everything to do with Simran and everything felt like it fell in my lap and I couldn't believe that I'd found what I would what I'd been looking for. Wonderful. What's a favorite book that you can share with us? You know what it is that I would I again these questions are so difficult through the lens of what I'm speaking about because there are books that I read that help me make sense of the external world to be able to find the language, to be able to speak about what we speak about like now through Simran. 
So there's books like that. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that they were great books. They're just good books that help me make sense of it. Sure. So have I found that one book where I'm like, oh my God, everybody, you should read this for... That's why I say what's a favorite book, because personally, yeah. I couldn't give you just the one either, I don't think. Because like you said, there's great books for different reasons, for different times of life. But perhaps give us a title of one of those study books that you use. Okay, so I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing. I'm mentally going through the list of the books on my coffee table right now. But the one book actually, and it would be a great disservice if I didn't mention the ultimate book, because it essentially is that, which is Siri Guru Granth Sahib Ji, which is the sacred scriptures that we have that have absolutely everything you need to know about this journey of the mind or the journey of life within it. And it is made up of scripts from firsthand, from all of those gurus, teachers, sons who have actually traveled this journey, the problems and the obstacles that they faced, how they overcame them, and it has immense amount of history in it as well. So that would be the ultimate book, I would say. I should have thought that too. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Where is somewhere you visited that you felt really had an impact on who you are today? See, it feels like it's one of those questions where you want to go, oh, when I went to Peru, when I was in Japan, when I was in Russia, whenever. And the reality is, the greatest impact would have been in that sweetest moment. And that would have been at the Gurdwara when I heard what I heard. What bigger impact could there ever have been? Mm. Thank you. And I think it ties into that thing that we spoke about, home, house, your body, that thing. And that, that land can only be the internal land is the true land that will have the biggest impact. It's nice to go away and travel, see different worlds, different cultures and stuff like that. But ultimately, the land that's going to have the biggest impact is the one inside of you. Thank you. Now, imagining that you can step into a future version of yourself, what do you think is the most important advice that future you can give to present state you? What do you need to hear? It's interesting because I'm like, what do I need to hear that I don't already know? I guess it would be, I know what my internal mission and practice and goal is, say, for example, this year or this foreseeable future. I would like to think that my future self would be like, it's okay, be patient, you're going to get there. You'll get there. Mm. Then I also can't take credit for that either because that's also something that has been shared to me by, by the scriptures that I've said. You go on this path, you start traveling it, you stay true to it, you'll get there, you'll get to your end destination. Yeah, but I appreciate that in the context of sometimes it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need to be reminded, yeah, yeah. you'll get there. Yeah. Just keep going. Exactly. And again, it goes back to the notion of community, good company and what have you, because they'll remind you as well. And my last question, what brings you happiness? This serving, doing Simran and being in service of a higher purpose and existing and navigating this one opportunity that I have been given in life, which is the human life, just being a human. To, to be able to fulfill that 
and be the person that I've always meant to have been brings me complete joy. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Deep, for making time to talk to me, for answering my many questions. It's been a real journey for me as well. I have loved every moment of it. Where can people find you if they'd like to get in touch? Um, Mostly, I would say you can either email me via the website or on Instagram. I'm Deep Kaylee. Okay. (laughs) Well, thanks so much. I hope that we'll get a chance to see each other in person because I'd love to see the exhibition. Let me know. That would be wonderful. It'd be great to have you there. Yeah, that'd be really great. And have a wonderful rest of the day and the week and hopefully we'll be in touch soon. Definitely. Take care. Take care. Bye. So, friends and listeners, thanks again for joining me today. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter, Anne Mulethaler on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at underscore out of the clouds, where I also share daily musings about mindfulness. You can also find all of the episodes of the podcast and much more on my website, anvmulethaler.com. If you don't know how to spell it, it's also going to be in the show notes. If you would like to get regular news directly delivered to your inbox, I invite you to sign up to my monthly newsletter. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope that you will join me again next time. And until then, be well, be safe, and take care.